God, you deserve our praise. You deserve our honor. So may our hearts rejoice in a God who is beautiful, in a God who is kind, in a God who is gracious towards us. So we honor and love you, Father. In the name of Jesus, we praise you. Amen. Please remain standing as we read Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed thick leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I hid you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your plans in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to the children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from. Curses the ground because of you. Through painful toil you eat, from, you eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to wake the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, we thank you. For Jesus, you are ultimately the tree of life. May you illuminate your word to us this morning and your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So uh, six years ago, Kate and I...
got married, and uh, we, you know, went on our honeymoon. Is it okay to share honeymoon stories? As long as maybe I don't go overboard, right? Anyway, so one of the things that we did was to tour across Lake Malawi. You know, Malawi is beautiful. Lake Malawi is beautiful. And uh, there was this one place that we we're going to be at. And I was so looking forward to be at this place. I'm not going to mention the name of this place because I have somebody who works there. And, you know, I got to this place and uh, I had visited before but had never slept there or eaten there. So I was looking forward to the good food. I was looking forward to staying at this place. We had a beautiful night, great sunset, amazing meal. And then uh, when it was bedtime, uh, I think 10 minutes prior to bedtime, it started to rain. Now, there's those of us that just love night rain. And I'm one of those people that just love night rain. The sound, you know, of night rain, I just love it. Uh, you know, before I go on, I've always been amazed when I hear uh, Western songs about rain. They're always sad. Like these sad songs about rain, waiting for sunshine. I love rain. Um, you know, but anyway, last November I was in England and I realized why they have sad songs about rain. Because it's dumpy and cold. I'm like, oh, okay, it makes sense. Because our rain here is warm, you know, and it happens 10 minutes and then it's gone, right? So anyway, it starts to rain. Then 20 minutes in, I notice there's a leak in our room, you know. It's like a leak. Ah, there's a little leak. Anyway, let's just move our bed. And then realize, no, there's actually a proper hole in the ceiling, you know. And then this house, this room rather starts to flood. Now, there were flood people, but this was flooding with rain, water, you know, out in there. Uh, now, I can handle a leakage, but on my honeymoon at a nice hotel, come on, this is totally unacceptable. And uh, this, I called the reception, they took 10 minutes to respond to me, and then they took an hour to actually, you know, attend to us. So we were like standing in rainwater. And the only silver lining about this story is that we were there just for one night. Hallelujah. Uh, praise the Lord. I don't know if you've ever had a situation where like, you were hoping to get something and then you get it, but the result of it is not what you really expected. You know, and, like you're disappointed. Or maybe you really wanted to get something and you get it and then you come towards the end of it and you're like, no, this is what I hoped I would get. I didn't think I would get this. Yes, I, I, I thought I needed it, but I realized... I didn't really need this thing. I didn't really need to get it. And we see a lot of that in the area of temptation. You know, every temptation holds a promise. Every temptation, you know, gives you a promise that your life will be fulfilled. Your life will be so much better. You're going to get this beautiful thing if you're going to get into this. If you fall into this. There's something beautiful that's going to happen. And then you go through with it, and at the end of it, you realize, no. Actually, this is not what I really wanted. Because even though every temptation holds a promise, every temptation does not do a good job in fulfilling its promise. It never comes through. It always fails. Temptation always fails to fulfill its promise. And you realize that at the end, if you're going to fall into that temptation, at the end of end of it, there is a cost. It's more like you're gone into your favorite shop and you get this shirt which says free. It's written free. You can get it. It's free. Oh, these shoes, these shoes are free. And you get them 
And then you realize later on that actually there's a cost to this. There's a cost to this and you cannot get out of it until somebody rescues you because you don't have enough money. And that's what's gonna happen with temptation. Every single time we fall into temptation, there is a cost. There's a cost to it. And you realize this is not what I really wanted in my life. This is not what I really wanted in my life. And this story is a beautiful example of that reality. You know, when you know, our, 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 our mother, father, Eve and Adam, they're, they're seeing this and it's like, hey, they're gonna be beauty after eating this fruit. But at the end of it, there's disappointment. There is death at the end of this. Now, I just wanted uh, to mention a couple of things here that if we don't watch out, we might easily fall into temptation. Or every single time you fall into temptation, you probably have done one or a couple of uh, these things. So you will fall into temptation, number one, when you start to justify your sinful habits. When you start to justify your sinful habits. Verse 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from the any tree in the garden? Did God really say? That question, did God really say? You know, because the devil wanted to plant doubt in Eve's head about what God really said. Did God really say? You know, this question is looking for justification. Because this question wants to present God as though God is irrational. You know, this question wants to present God as though God is unkind, as though he's uncaring, as though he is unloving. Did he really say? And you begin to think, yeah, did he really say that? I think, come on, a normal person would say that? Maybe that's inconsiderate, you know? And this question, of course, is being asked by the devil. And sometimes you feel like, hey, until when he asked me that, but this does happen with us. That you begin to ask this yourself when you begin to look for justification to do something that you're not proud of. Did God really say? Can God see that I'm, a, I'm single? How does he expect me to avoid sexual sin? Did he really say? Did he really say? Can God see that I don't have food at home? I have nothing at home. How will I pay my renters? And if I don't go through with this deal, this deal a.k.a. corrupt act, right? How will he expect me to feed my family? Did God really say? Does God really, does he really, does he really think this is okay? Everybody else is doing it. Why should I not do it? Did God really say? Did God really say? And often you find yourself in a place that when you go and and question this or focus on this question long enough, you fall into sin and you begin to justify your sinful habits. Because often that's what we do. We begin to justify or defend our sinful habits and then judge other people for theirs, right? We do that a lot. But disobedience is always going to lead to chaos. It's always going to lead to chaos. Did God really say this? And when you go through with that, there will be chaos at the end of that. And God doesn't want us to justify our sinful habits. He wants us to surrender them to God. He wants us to mourn our sin, to remember that sin breaks God's heart. 
So therefore, we surrender to God. So you'll fall into temptation when you begin to justify your sinful habits. Number one. Number two, you'll fall into temptation when you start to doubt God's goodness. When you start to doubt God's goodness. The woman said to the serpent, verse two, we may eat from the trees in the garden, from, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die, or you will die. Now here, there is actually uh, not a proper representation of what God really said uh, here, because what God said is this, uh, Genesis 2:16, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you certainly die. You certainly die. Now you see God's presentation of what they should eat. Actually, it's more freeing, you know, because God does not give from a place of limitation, but from a place of abundance. So God says, you are free. You are free to eat. That's what God says. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. From any tree in the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah? So God is not, he's not saying, hey, you're restricted. He doesn't start with a restriction. He starts with the freedom that they've got. The abundance. God shows them, I am a good God that gives you the things that you need. I've given you everything here. But don't touch this one thing. And the devil is a liar. What the devil does is that he makes you pay attention to what you think God is not doing and blind you to every other thing that God is doing in your life. That's what he's going to do. Like he's going to blind you to all the amazing things that God is doing. The freedom that you have to eat, all the other fruits, all kinds of fruits. And just makes you pay attention to the one thing that you think God is not giving you. That's the devil. You know? And some of you maybe are going through that. And sometimes this comes from a hard place. And maybe you're going through a rough season right now. And you begin to wonder, is God really good? If he was really good, why would he allow me to go through this? If God is good, why did he not allow the healing to happen? If God is good, why did he not take care of my tuition? If God is good, why did he not fix this problem? If God is good, why did he not lead me there? Is he really good? And that's what happens with Jesus in the wilderness. When Jesus gets tempted, the devil says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, you know, if you are the son of God, turn this stone into bread. And the reason why he said, if you are the son of God, was to begin to make just doubt. Am I really the son of God? If I'm hangry, am I really the son of God? If I cannot get that, Am I really the son of God if there's no provision in my life? But Jesus has a better answer. He says that no man shall live by bread alone, but by every single word that comes from the mouth of God. Just because I lack something doesn't mean that God is not good. Because God's goodness is not dependent on the things that I've got or the things that I don't have. God is good because God is good. His presence is good. His intentions are good. So we're going to pay attention. We're not going to gauge God's goodness based on the things that we've got. But because we've got God in our lives. And there's beauty that he has already provided for you in your life right now. 
Number three, you're going to fall into temptation when you start to think that God is keeping from you what you deserve. When you start to think that God is keeping from you what you deserve. Verse six says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, to her husband who was with her and he ate it. You know, when Eve looked at, the, at the, this fruit, and she begins to look and see this fruit, this fruit which gives her wisdom, she reckons, and it's good for food. You know, who doesn't like good food? This is good food, and it looks like that, and it's pleasing to the eye. And then she begins to wonder, wait a minute, maybe God is keeping from me what I deserve. Maybe God is holding something that I really deserve. He doesn't want me to have it. I deserve good food. I deserve wisdom. I deserve all of these things. Now, the funny thing of this, of like the characteristics of the fruit, uh, which are like pleasing to the eye, like good for food, like these ones were not only attributed to only this one fruit. Actually, Every other fruit that God created had, had the same characteristics. Uh, let me read it. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Pleasing to the eye and good for food. So there were other fruits that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So it wasn't only one tree that was pleasing to the eye and good for food. It only had one characteristic that we know, or, um, or maybe two that we, we know this one had, which was it would give you the knowledge of good and evil. But the devil plays a trick on you when you begin to feel like God is resenting you because he's uh, holding something that you deserve. Now, there's so many gifts that God gave Adam and Eve, so many gifts. There are so many gifts that God has given you as a person. And the devil want to turn your eyes to the one gift that you cannot have. And then you begin to, you begin to feel like he's, whole, he's withholding something that I deserve. But God is not keeping from you what you deserve. God is keeping from you what you don't need. What you don't need. Because here's the thing. God knows that there are certain things that you need in your life. And whatever God will give you, it's going to be a good thing. Whatever God gives you, it's going to be a good thing. But God gives us good things, not the things that we think we need, but the things he knows we need. And therefore, that means there are certain good things that God will sees that they're not good for us. Because not every good thing is good for you. Not every good gift is actually good for you. What God is going to give you is going to be good, but not every good thing is for you. Maybe marriage is good, but might not be good for you in this season. You know, business is good, but might not be good for you in this season. Maybe getting a master's is good, but might not be good for you in this season. Not every good thing is good for you. God, if God withholds something from you, it's because he records that you don't need it. You don't need it. And every single time you feel like, no, he's keeping from you that which I deserve. If you're not careful, you're going to fall into temptation. 
And when you go into that space, you're going to get stuck in sin. You're going to get stuck in there. Number four, you fall into temptation when you start to make your happiness a priority above God's holiness. When you start to make your happiness a priority above God's holiness. Verse six again. Eve looks at, the, at the, this fruit and reckons, this is first of all good for food, desirable, it's gonna give me wisdom. In other words, this is gonna make me happy. This is gonna make me happy. This is gonna make me feel good. It's going to make me feel good. And there's a line. It's the line that your life will be complete if you get this. Your life will be so much better than it is right now if you get this. But actually, that's a lie. Because this makes you focus on the gift rather than on the giver. Because your life is never satisfied because, that, because you have this thing in your life. Your life is satisfied because of, it's satisfied because of Jesus. He's the one who truly satisfies your life and fulfills your life. So do not make happiness as what you gauge or something that you use to gauge to see if this is God's will or not. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. That's what Jesus says. Following Jesus is not about making ourselves happy. It's actually about denying ourselves. It's about denying ourselves. Following Jesus is not about making ourselves happy. It's about dying to self so that we can live for Jesus. So that we can experience what it really mean, means to live for God. Following Jesus is not about making ourselves happy. But it's an invitation for us to experience true love in Christ. So God is inviting you to walk the path of holiness, not the path where you're only happy, where you're only happy. And I must say here, um, often I do this, uh, we, we gauge God's will you know, for us depended on the kind of peace that we feel, you know? So often we're like, yeah, I, uh, I think God is calling me to this because I, 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 and I feel peace about this. You know, there's peace in my heart about this. And there are times that God uses peace or the feeling of peace as a way of affirming his call for you in that space. But to use peace as the only gauge that you've got, it's dangerous. You know, because there are times that you can feel peaceful about something that God is not proud of. There are times you can be, feel peaceful about something that's sinful. You probably know this. You know, you, when you start to go on this path of sin, the first time you do it, maybe you, you might feel bad about it. You know, the second time, maybe a little bit bad, but the third time, fourth time, and then eventually, it's like you don't even notice that you're on this path of sin. You don't. You feel peace about this. You feel good about this. So you cannot bear just the feeling of peace as the only thing that you're going to use to judge if God wants you to be in this space or not. We need to look into what is God saying? What is the word of the Lord saying to me? And Jeremiah actually talks about how our hearts are so deceitful that we cannot even know our own hearts really 
truly. So therefore, we depend on God. Because God will not just lead you to a path of happiness. He's going to lead you to a path that will grow you the most. And often those spaces are uncomfortable and hard. Not easy. All right. Lastly, you're going to fall into temptation when you start to run away from God rather than run away from your sin. When you start to run away from God rather than run away from your sin. Verse 8 says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid. They hid. When you fall into sin, you're gripped by shame. And shame will drive you to hide. So you're going to hide from God and you're going to hide from community because you don't want to put yourself in a place where you could be vulnerable. So you hide. But when we hide, when we run away from God, we are believing lies. The first lie we believe is that we are only loved by God because we've been good. That's a lie. When you run away because you're covered in shame, you're believing a lie that God only loves you because you've been good. But God never loves us because we've been good. God never loves us based on our track record. We are loved because of Jesus. It's not dependent on what we have done, but what he has done for us. When you run away from God, another lie that you believe is that you begin to believe that you're better at fixing your sin than God. You begin to feel like, you know what, I'm going to show up Whenever I fix, after I fix myself, then I'll come. After I make, I make myself clean, then I'll come to God. But actually, Jesus is better at fixing your sin than you can. And when you run away, when you hide, you believe a lie. You believe a lie that you can earn God's grace because of your good works. You believe a lie. But God wants you to come. Even in your shame. He wants you to come. He wants you to come. Because when you go to God, you will see, you experiencing, you will experience God's grace. And God shows Adam and Eve his grace by covering them. You know, God covers us with his grace. That last scripture talks about God making garments off of animal skins and he clothed them. He clothed them. And when we run to God, What we are not going to find there is condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ. We're going to find there is acceptance and welcoming where God says, come through and he'll clothe us with his grace, with his grace. We like to say here at Flood that this community, your neighbors, yourself, myself, all of us included, that we are the garment that God uses to cover each other's shame. We are the garment, we are the skin that God uses to cover each other's shame. When we tell each other, I love you, I am for you, I'm with you, I stand with you, I want to walk with you. One of our values is with people growing together so that we can experience transformation in Jesus. Can we walk together? Can we be the garment that God uses to cover someone else? So when you go to God, when you run to God, God will cover you with his grace. But also when you go to God, you're going to find there the message of hope for your salvation. That God gives you a message of hope for your salvation. 
Verse 15 says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and he will strike his heel. Now that passage, that verse alone, isn't only just talking about Adam and Eve. Actually, it talks about a bigger truth, a bigger truth. We realize through that that there will be enmity between God and the devil, and there will be an offspring coming from the woman who we know to be Jesus. And what we know about this is that the devil will just strike his heel or just bruise his heel, but he, the offspring, will crush its head, will crush it. That means in the end, Jesus is victorious. God wins in the end. There's hope for your salvation. In the midst of a chaos, in the midst of curses, there is hope. There is grace. There is a way out for your salvation. God brings out this. And we know that, God, that Jesus becomes the hope to our brokenness. That Jesus is the hope. Jesus is the hope. And because of Jesus, we don't need to run anymore. We go to him so we can receive the mercy that he provides. When you go to God, you will realize that God will never want to leave you in your lost state forever. You know, this passage ends with God driving out Adam and Eve, you know, out of this garden. And, you know, it's like, oh, come on, really? Why? Why drive them out? Let them enjoy. Let them chill. This is a beautiful place. But God says, it's better they stay out so they don't come back and eat from the tree of life and live forever in their sinful state. It's best they're kept out so that they can be saved. So they can be saved, so that they can come to God because God has a plan. And his plan, when you go to Revelation, you realize that God is building an Eden-like garden. He's building an Eden-like garden. Where we're gonna go in, there'll be no pain, no tears in there, and we're gonna flourish and be in the presence of God for eternity. That's a hope. God never leaves us in our hopeless state forever. So what's our response to this? Your response to sin always needs to be with confession and surrender. When you come to God and you confess your sin. Confession just means that you name where you are. You name what's happening. You name your reality. So you confess your sin. God, I am a sinner. Help me. You surrender to God. You mourn your sin because you realize that sin breaks God's heart. So you mourn it. And you come to God. And it's good for us to surrender our sins. Because if we don't surrender, if we don't confess our sins and surrender our sins, one thing that we're going to realize is that sin punishes the innocent. You know, this passage you read, the curses that are coming, right? And one of the curses is definite death, which you and I experience and we will experience where we're going to die. Now, you and I might stand here and be like, we were not there. Why are we being punished? Like, we were not with you, Adam. We were not with you, Eve. Why? Should we experience the consequences of your sin? But that presents to us the reality of sin. 
that actually sin eventually will punish the innocent. Sin eventually punishes the innocent. So in other words, you might sin alone, but you don't really sin alone. Because the consequences of your sin will punish the innocent. Just a few weeks ago, two young people who were living together by the side of the road, catching up, talking about life. Up the road comes a vehicle, like the person who was driving this vehicle was, was under the influence of alcohol. They bump into other vehicles and they eventually bumps into these two young people and they die on the spot. Very sad moment when I went to that funeral. The decision of one person who chose to drive under the influence of alcohol, their own choice, but takes the lives of two young people. Your sin punishes the innocent. So you've been unfaithful at work, you've been corrupt, and you get fired, you lose your job, and now you cannot pay tuition for your kids. They have to be withdrawn from school. Sin will punish the innocent. You've been unfaithful to your spouse, you contract a disease, you infect your spouse, you kill your spouse. Sin will affect the innocent. We don't sin alone. And you and I know the reality, the deeper truth in this is that my sin, your sin, eventually kills the innocent one who is Jesus. That the innocent one dies on our behalf. He dies on your behalf, on my behalf. Sin will affect the innocent. And we thank God because of Jesus, the innocent one who takes on our shame, who takes on our punishment. And he says, I'm going to die for you. Willingly so. He dies for us and gives us hope. Gives us hope. How can you practically do this? I want to just propose a few things that are good for us to do, to practically do to avoid temptation, especially in the areas of sins that easily entangle us, that we easily fall into. Number one, uh, break the support systems that you have created around your sin. Just like we become victorious by having a supportive system around us in the areas of our struggle, the same way we thrive, so to speak, in our sin because we have created some supportive systems around our sin. You know, this is why God was so big. Whenever God would call, would, would call out the children of Israel from idol worship, he would tell them, go break the altars of idols. Go break those places. Go break your idols because what God is telling them is you have created systems around your sin, things that enable you to sin easily, go break them. Go break them. So if you look in your own life, most people that sin that you struggle with the most, what systems have you created around that? What is it that you need to break? And what new systems do you need to create around it? In other words, what I'm saying is, make it hard for you to fall into that sin. Make it hard for yourself. Create new systems. Break the old ones. Create new systems around you. 
The second thing to consider to practically do this is to consider what kind of story you want to tell. Consider what kind of story you want to tell. You know, God does ask Adam, and God says, where are you? When God, you know, comes into the garden, he's asking Adam, where are you, Adam? Now, God is not asking Adam so that Adam sends God a pin, you know, a question pin, like, hey, let me WhatsApp you, God, where I am so you can find me. Here's my GPS. No, no, no. God knows where Adam is at. But actually, God does ask this question as a way of giving Adam an opportunity to tell his story. What kind of story are you going to tell? What kind of story are you going to tell? If you look into your life right now, in five years, what kind of story do you want to tell about this moment, about this season of your life? Or maybe let's flip that question. What kind of story do you want your loved ones to tell about you? about this season that you're in, about this stage of your life. Because right now, we are telling a story about Adam, about Eve, we are telling. What kind of stories do you want your loved ones to tell? And I think sometimes, if we would consider that question, we'd probably maybe avoid a lot of bad decisions that we make. What kind of story do you wanna tell? Maybe I shouldn't go there because I don't like the story that I would tell if I go through this. Finally, shift your gaze from temptation to Jesus. You know, Eve gazes or looks intensely at this fruit and she begins to formulate ideas. Like this fruit wasn't, was not talking saying, I give you wisdom. There was not a recipe about this fruit. But because she's looked at this fruit long enough, she's beginning to make up things. And maybe this is going to Give me wisdom. This is going to give me this. going to give me that. The longer at temptation you look, the more unattractive Jesus becomes. But the more or the longer at Jesus you look or you guess, the more unattractive your temptation becomes. And you're like, no, because being tempted is not a sin. It is when you fall into temptation, right? So you look up to Jesus. Because when you look up to Jesus, everything else begins to fade. And Jesus is glorified above all. And we know that when we come to Jesus, we find hope. We find rescue. Because you realize that in Jesus, if you are lost, that the lost are actually looking for God. But actually the beauty or the miracle is that God is looking for the lost. Luke 19 verse 10. Jesus Christ, in his own words, talks about him coming, seeking the lost and saving the lost. That's why he came, to seek and save the lost. He is looking, he is searching, he is seeking for the lost. That's a miracle right there. And that's what he's doing for you even right now. And your response to the work of Jesus is to confess and, and repent of your sin, to change your mind about this reality and say, no, I want to say yes to Jesus. I want to, yes, I want to say yes to God because in Jesus, there is hope. He is for you. Jesus comes to you and says, I'm going to remove shame from your life. I'll cover you in grace. Close your eyes for a moment. Some of you already know where God is calling you, what God is already demanding of you as I've been speaking. Maybe God is inviting you to confession so that you confess your sin. Maybe God is inviting you 
to make a decision to follow Jesus. Maybe you, you came today, but you're not sure if you really believe in God. You're not sure if you really believe in Jesus. You're not sure. And if you're here this morning, whether here in person or online, and you have not yet given your life to Jesus, this is a moment for you. I want to just pray with me. Just say, Lord Jesus, I come to you right now. Forgive me of my sin. Have mercy on me. Holy Spirit, help me follow Jesus. Help me to love Jesus. And if you feel like God is inviting you to confession, maybe just take a moment to just confess your sin to God. If God is calling you to repentance, to just say, God, I repent of my sin and I want to fall in your footsteps. Just take a moment. Just pray for yourself. Lord Jesus, we come to you right now. We know that we are broken and are in need of a Savior. Lord, we confess of our sin. We confess of the times that we have trusted in ourselves. Forgive us, Lord, of the times that we consider that you are keeping things away from us, the things that we deserve. When we doubted your goodness and your kindness, Forgive us, Lord. Have mercy on us. But Lord, we know where else can we go apart from Jesus. For you have the words of life. The words that give us hope. So we thank you and we honor you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. May we stand as we worship God one more time.